Your Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne is chatting with Jessica Ava, who will be telling us all about the amazing new organization she's heading up. It's called Thrive Philanthropy. Oh, and today's show is guest starring Marianne's cat, who is meowing in the background right now. (laughs) I didn't know whether you could hear that. Yeah, it was like so cute. My cats are very wound up this morning, so expect to hear more from them. You know how sometimes they get like, like they sleep like 23 hours and then they decide to run around the house like crazy things. Yeah, that was so cute. That's where we are. We're at the crazy thing. Uh, All right. Well, I love them. And then sometimes when they get in that mood, I I start chasing them around the house, which like (laughs) totally confuses them. And they're like, what the fuck is she doing? And, And what is your, what is little Lulu doing this whole time? I think she's asleep. Okay. Yeah, that, no, that she's not. She's noodling under the dining room table. That's the update from the Sullivan household. All right. Well, so back to Thrive <laughs> Philanthropy, which I don't know. I think it's fascinating, but I also think the way your cats interact with one another is also fascinating. Thrive Philanthropy is working to fund grassroots organizations and food justice advocates who are working to expand plant-based eating around the world. We're big fans of Jessica and super excited. It was a great interview. I'm really excited about the work they're doing. They have made so much progress in such a short amount of time, mostly by finding the right people to fund. Like in, you know, just think of what a big job that is to go into countries where you're totally unfamiliar with the landscape and try to figure out who are the right people to give money to. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, I can't wait. It's exciting. Yeah. And she's like our neighbor too, which is she is even more exciting. I, I think she's in uh, Nepal at the moment. She gets around. She does. So speaking of getting around, we have a wonderful flock member in Down Under in Australia, Elizabeth Usher, who shared some news with us. And we love good news. You know, like there's just so many times that we have to deliver crappy news that when we hear things like the Chippo Hotel is now Australia's first all vegan pub. It's so cool. I mean, I, I thank you for sharing that. I love it when people send us good news. Do you wish you could go to an all-vegan pub in Australia? I mean, I just get the feeling that Australian pubs are probably really a lot of fun. One would think. Like much more than than ours. I don't know. We're, 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 we've become so such a dreary country. <laughs> yeah, I actually... So I am 44 and I started saving for my 50th birthday. <laughs> Because I want to go to Berlin and experience all of the vegan yumminess. And I'm not going to like randomly have the money to do a trip like that. So I thought just sock away a little money each month and then I'll have enough. But I I just wanted to say that I did want the trip to be Sydney. I just, I, it's too fucking far away. <laughs> like, I it is a very long trip. trip. It's a very long trip. And I think this pub is, you know, Australia is a very, very large place. Not all of it is heavily populated, but I think this is, this hotel is either in or right outside of Sydney. So that's the area that it's in. Mm, all right. Well, now I want to go there. Ah. I know. It'd be so much fun. Let's all meet there next year. Okay. Let's just <laughs> okay. do it. I don't know how that tracks with your everybody about, listening about Get, not flying. Like you don't fly. <laughs> I, are you going to like take a boat? Well, I don't, you know, I don't have like a absolute, I'm never flying again for the rest of my life thing. Just, I, I would only fly for really, really, really good reasons. I both think that flying is, you know, alarming and, and a contributor to climate change, but also I just hate it. But, you know, if the reward is great enough, it's not like I'm crossing it off the list forever. Just 
pretty close to that. Flying to Australia would be, yeah, I would need a week to recover from that. So if, when we go to Australia, we will have to stay for at least a month. Okay. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> sure. That sounds like a good plan. And I feel like you would need to fly first class so that you could have the bed. Business would be fine. It doesn't have to be first. <laughs> the trip, round trip for first class is like $20,000. It's hilarious. Yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start saving. I'm sure I'll be Definitely. there by next year. All right. And we can stay with Elizabeth. I'm sure we, we can, can all, all stay, stay with, with Elizabeth, Elizabeth when we're there. Yeah. Every, every single one of you. <laughs> Thanks, Elizabeth, for writing in. <laughs> and, and go out to the Chippo Hotel and, and you know. Yeah. So much fun. I'm so excited. I do love a good vegan pub. I mean, we certainly have them. Like, I love Charlie Was a Sinner in Philadelphia. And- ah, that was great. Didn't you go to one in Cleveland? Yes, I did. A really great kind of witchy one in Cleveland. And then there was that one right outside of Rockport, Illinois that we went to once. Oh, God, that was so good. So good. Rockford. Rockford. Isn't it called like Pig's Mind? Yeah. 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 And I've been obviously like New York City. There are some... Yeah, we should... I'm sure there's a directory of them somewhere. We We should do a vegan pub tour. Okay, from Elizabeth's house, we'll leave. (laughs) And we'll get a jet that is fully electric and we'll go around the world in it. Uh, All right. Where do you you plug that in? Yeah, I mean, the clouds, isn't like the cloud supposed to be... Right, we'll just plug it into a cloud. A cloud, yeah. <laughs> sure this will work. All right, let's Can we move, move on? on. Yes. So we got an email from Adam Hicks, and he is the founder and host of Community Documentary Night, which is based out of Atlanta. And we wanted to share this with people. It's cool. I mean, uh, that's why I thought we should share it. Yes. Yeah, so if you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out, and I know some of you are because you text me like by noon on the day it comes out, then you might want to tune in because it's tomorrow, February 18th, 2024, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern. They will be uh, taking part in their honoring of Black History Month with a documentary viewing and discussion. It's totally free. But you view the documentary before the you just view it on your own. You can watch it for free. and And then after you watch it, then you join the Zoom discussion group and they actually break people up into groups to talk about it. So you get to meet people. I mean, a lot of people actually like to meet other humans. You're not one of um, them. <laughs> and it really does sound like a great idea. And the movie, I'm so excited about the movie they're featuring. We had Keegan Kuhn and John Lewis on the podcast back on 622 to talk about it. It's They're Trying to Kill Us. I feel like this movie never got the attention that it deserved. It was really good. They cover a lot of people in hip hop and just fascinating. And uh, and the connections to veganism and, of course, the huge health issues that are involved. So there's a few things involved. There's this community documentary night, which just has all sorts of, com- of documentaries. And if you enjoy the process, you might want to see more of them. Then there's Black History Month. And that, by the way, that's that's a, a collaboration with Apex Advocacy and the Black Veg Society. Yeah, this event is a collaboration 
Yeah, for Black History Month, they're collaborating with Apex Advocacy and Black Veg Society, and I'm so happy that they chose them. And of course, then there's then there's the filmmakers who made this great movie, They're Trying to Kill Us. So yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes. You watch the movie, and then if you hear this in time, and I know it's late notice, you can join the discussion group. But even if you don't join the discussion group and you hear this later, you can still watch the movie for free for the rest of February. Yeah, very cool. We will link to it in the show notes for those of you who are interested in doing this because, yeah, y'all love a good a good chat, right? Yes. It's nice to, I mean, I love the idea of, of, of watching a movie, but then, you know, having a chance to, especially if it's documentary, to like download your thoughts with somebody else. So there's something else that I actually wanted to chat with you about, which I have not chatted with you about yet. And I don't know your reasoning for this, but you changed your Twitter bio, otherwise known as X. You changed it from... Well, I'm not known as X. My bio isn't known as X, but yeah, Twitter is now known as X. Thank you for the clarification. Sure people were confused by that. Yeah, they would have been like, have you listened to our headhouse with Jasmine Singer and X Sullivan? Uh, <laughs> Maybe we should all change our names to X. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do it. The, the podcast hosts... F- formerly known as, you know, Marianne. <laughs> and Marianne Jasmine. Now she's known as X. We are not high right now. For those of you who are wondering if we were. Just because I'm laughing doesn't mean I'm high. I do laugh once in a while. The other day, I don't even remember what it was, but I, I texted you something that was so funny. Like I was cracking up to the point where I was like sobbing. And I said, I'm fully sober right now too. And as I said that, I looked over and I had just finished a seltzer that had THC in it. So it did explain a lot because the thing that you were you were contacting me about was not even remotely funny. And you were oh, in it was so funny. you were in stitches. But it's a little dangerous. You better watch that. You you could get in the car or something. No, I just no, I would never do that. I, I but you never. wouldn't if you didn't know. Yeah, I did know. I just like forgot momentarily. But believe me. Anyway, back to X Sullivan's new bio. <laughs> so you changed it from animal rights activist to animal lover. There were a few things in there, like lawyer something. And I, I should preface this conversation to say I'm very inactive on social media. Nobody's ever going to look at my Twitter bio. This is all this is all something that's happening in my head. It's not like it's important. You know, I I looked at it and I saw animal rights activists and I thought if somebody saw that, and as I mentioned, nobody ever will, but it's a way of thinking about things. Uh, and saw that would say, well, I'm not an animal rights activist. I'm not interested. And I thought maybe I should make it a little bit more like something that other people who care about animals who might not like, you know, think of them in exactly the same way I do, but who also care about animals might might identify with. I guess we're talking about identities really here. And then so I thought, yeah, maybe I should change it. And animal lovers, they obviously want people who care about animals generally denote themselves animal lovers. And then I started thinking about it and I really thought, Animal lover really covers it so much better than animal rights activist. I mean, I am an animal rights activist. I like to think I am. You know, sometimes I'm more active than others. And and I believe in animal rights. Sometimes you don't know exactly what that means in in how that plays out in a real situation. What do you mean by rights? You know, it gets into this very philosophical, what is a right? Some people, utilitarians don't even believe there is such a thing as a right. Like, Like, who cares? Who gives a fuck about any of that? My real motivation is love. I mean, saying animal lover may sound like just anything, but it's love is like the force. 
it is the force that drives us to be who we are, at least the positive things that we are, and to do what we do, and to connect us to the world. And there's that line from the Bible. I don't like to cite the Bible, and I don't know who said it. It was probably St. Paul, and he's the worst of all of them, but it, it's, I know it's New Testament, so you can stop listening to Esmond. Um, <laughs> I already stopped listening. <laughs> when you said Bible, I was like, I'm an atheist Jew. Go ahead, X. I just remember random lines, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And that is so true. It's the greatest, I mean, like if you take the word love seriously. So that's my long-winded explanation. And now I, I get to like talk about it. So it doesn't matter that nobody's actually ever going to go to my um my Twitter bio and see it. But I like it. And, you know, lawyer, something else, and animal lover. That's what I am. I am an animal lover. I love them like that in a deep, deep way. Yeah. And I love you for that. And I have to tell you, I'm also dealing with like a bio issue. I have to change a bio for, you know, WXXI just because I don't like what I had written a while ago. And you only have a few words to say something. And it's so funny to like, to work in public media and want so much to just lead with veganism. I'm definitely going to put veganism in there, which is easy for me because... But Animal Lover, that's the... uh, I'll tell you, I've got the solution. But I have a book called Fabulous Vegan. Veganism is the tool. It's the expression. It's the way in which you love animals. But the identity of who you are is an animal lover. You just take it seriously. It's true. Remember that fight you got in with my brother? Like, oh God, I think about it all the time. 15 years ago when at the dinner table with the family where you were like, you can't be an animal lover and eat animals. And it really pissed him off. No, I wasn't that. Your brother, unsurprisingly, was the one who started it. He insisted that some person he knew what, who like who who rescued dogs or something or donated money or whatever was an animal lover. You know, I, I'm not going to object to that. Like, you, you know, I don't want to get into a fight. But then he insisted. No, he didn't insist that they were an animal lover. He insisted they were an animal rights activist because they rescued dogs. I don't remember exactly how it played out, but your brother can be somewhat provocative. And so I just couldn't let it rest. Like, you know, you can't really call yourself an animal rights activist if you're a dog rights activist, like, like it, it's wonderful to be a dog rights activist. Good for you. But there's other animals. That was my only point. We don't have the same personality, but in one way, we do that neither of us really lets go. I have to say, I was just talking to a friend of mine who was having like a relationship issue that this person was sharing with me. And one of the big parts of our discussion was the idea of not having the last word. And I'm not going to pretend to be perfect at this at all. I'm very, very, very flawed around conflict. But I have worked a lot on not needing to have the last word. And I think that that's important in animal rights advocacy work, because sometimes people like my brother are going to come up and they're going to be making their point. They're the type of person that has to have the last word. But I do believe that the vast majority of people who have that kind of a personality do think about it later in their own head. They're not going to like tell you. So I, I'm i not saying that like in that particular situation that I think you, it was hot and awesome. But I, I'm just saying for people who are listening to this, who feel similarly passionate 
in certain moments, sure, you're going to have moments where you're not going to back down, but give yourself the gift of like walking away sometimes. Yeah, you don't have to back down in order to walk away. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, like too often, I equate those things in my head and they don't have to be equated. You can say your piece, exactly. not give in, not say, yeah, you know, just agree to disagree and, and walk away. You can definitely do that. Interesting. And live to talk another day. Exactly. Well, thankfully, Jessica Ava is talking another day because I love what she has to say. So let's get to that. Jessica Ava is the CEO and founder of Thrive Philanthropy, an initiative launched to dismantle accessibility barriers for non-USA grassroots organizations and ensure food justice advocates around the globe have equitable access to funding opportunities. Cool. (laughs) Within its first year, Thrive Philanthropy expanded the vegan food justice movement in one out of every three countries in the world through grants and capacity. Jessica is one of the first Native Americans to sit in a leadership position in the vegan philanthropic space. She will be joining X, I mean, Marianne, (laughs) right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome back to our hen house, Jessica. Hi, Marianne. It's so nice to be here once again. Thank you for inviting me. I am so excited to have you. Well, it's always nice to talk to you, but I really want to hear about what you're doing. I was calling it a project before we started recording, but this is much bigger than a project. This is a big thing. People probably don't know a lot about Thrive Philanthropy because it's really new. Can we just start off by maybe a very broad overview, and then we'll spend the rest of the interview getting into some details. Yeah, certainly. Thrive Philanthropy is a global grant-making and capacity firm, and our mission is to overcome industrial animal agriculture and create just plant-based food systems. And we do this by offering grant-making support all across the globe and also offering leadership development, coaching, and management development for our grantees as well. And then in addition to that, we also connect donors with organizations all across the globe, and we have various types of donor initiatives as well to ensure that we can also get additional funding to global advocates that way as well. And then a bit more about Thrive is we're also a BIPOC majority organization, and right now we're an all-woman team. And we are also one of the first organizations in the vegan philanthropy space to be led by a Native American woman. I have to say, I've known you for a long time, Jessica, and I never knew that you had Native American heritage. Yeah, I'm very well passing. I look like my white mother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, aside from that, you know, it just never came up before. And it's really something to hear about. And I want to hear more about it. I'm trying to avoid saying things like that's really cool, which doesn't seem adequate to the topic, but it is really cool. And, you know, it gives you a perspective that I was not aware was there and I want to hear more about it. But first, I want to hear more about Thrive Philanthropy because it sounds like somebody decided that, okay, we're going to change the entire world. We have to stop just talking to American activists, which, you know, is an important project, but there's a whole world out there and there's a whole world of people who care about animals. And so we're going to reach them. You haven't existed very long, but you have already reached 
a lot of places with funding just to give us an idea of that global reach. Yeah. And I think it might help a bit if I talk a bit more about our background. Should I go into kind of what led up to Thrive Philanthropy before I talk about our reach so far? Sure. If that would be helpful, that would be great. Yeah, I think that helps to set the stage. So I've been working in philanthropy for about 14 years now, and most of that time has been within the animal and vegan space. I look at philanthropy as this invisible force that happens behind social justice movements, because any work that's being done in social justice movements or being done in the nonprofit sector, most of that work is going to require funding. It's going to require money. And a lot of organizations, they can't pay it on their own. So they're going to be looking for outside sources to find funding revenue. And so a lot of the work that happens within social justice sectors, a lot of that is dependent upon the type of work that philanthropy does. So the type of funding that philanthropy is willing to give to, the type of strategies that philanthropy is willing to give to, and so forth. So that's why I think of philanthropy is this invisible force that's happening behind not only the vegan movement, but also social justice sectors. And so as I've been working in my career in philanthropy, one role that I played previously is that I was able to develop and lead one of what we believe was the largest international vegan grant-making funds at the time. And during that time, I was really able to get a lot of funding out to organizations all across the world and really able to significantly expand the global vegan movement. And at that time, we were funding about 70 countries or so. And then when I was there, I began to think, you know, we're doing this great work. We're getting a lot of funding out to build the global movement. But how could we improve upon that? How could we expand it? How could we do this even better? And how could we also ensure that philanthropy, this invisible force that's that's working behind the movement, how could we also ensure that we're doing that the best way that we possibly can? That is essentially how Thrive was born. The founding team has been working together closely for a couple of years, so we do have a history together. And then we came on and we launched Thrive last year. When we launched Thrive, we had three main aims and three main niches that we wanted to fill in the movement. And the first aim, of course, was to expand the global movement and ensure that funding was able to get out to countries all across the world. And then the second aim we had was to dismantle accessibility barriers to funding because I was noticing that there were a lot of very remarkable advocates that they were encountering hurdles when trying to access funding opportunities. And this was happening a lot in Global South countries as well. So with Thrive, we really wanted to work to dismantle these accessibility barriers, ensure that all organizations have equal access to apply for funding. And then the last aim that we had with Thrive was to see how we could do philanthropy the best way that we possibly could. And the way that we choose to do it is we use an equitable funding approach. This is also known as a trust-based philanthropy approach, if there are any philanthropy nerds out there. But with an equitable funding approach, essentially what it does is it gives organizations and grantees the flexibility to use funding with the strategy that they deem most impactful. And there's very few restrictions and criteria and so forth so that the organizations really have the flexibility to work in the most impactful way that they can with the funding. And then also with the equitable funding approach, we try to really dismantle the power dynamics that are seen between a grant maker and a grantee and put us on an equal partnership 
And then when we're in an equal partnership, it means that we're able to build a more authentic and trusting relationship with our grantees. And then that enables us to offer even additional support for them. We can help them problem solve. We can help them with additional resources, introduce them to new donors and so forth. So by working through these various methods, using equitable funding approaches, dismantling funding barriers and so forth, we feel like it really helps to ensure that funding gets out across the globe in the best way possible and also reaches organizations that may not have otherwise had opportunities to apply for funding. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing project, but it it also brings up so many questions of how you make this work because there are risks involved too. I mean, as we all know from life on this planet, to trust somebody is to take a risk in in every single context. And I'm sure that is here too, but also you don't achieve anything without trust either. So two of the risks that occurred to me when you're talking about this is there are some people out there who are just crooks. So you have to have some kind of caution and double checking to make sure that your money is going to what it's told for. But the other thing, which I guess is very specific to our movement, It's the whole vegan thing. I mean, there are many people who are doing very fine work and care about animals and care about the planet, but are not taking the same approach that vegan advocates are taking. And, you know, that's all fine, but you you might have funders who don't want to fund that. So how do you deal with those challenges and still build this? I mean, I love the idea of empowering people to make their own decisions and to not feel that they're constantly reporting to somebody about whether they're good enough. So how do you deal with the risks as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we do have a vetting process, certainly, as you know, all grant makers do. And also, when we have an opportunity to build an authentic relationship, we get to know these organizations in a deeper and more meaningful way. And then also, we can look at their track record of success. We can look at past histories and so forth. So we do have a vetting process that we go through to ensure that funding is being used as it's intended to be used. It's not as if we just freely hand out money and wish it good luck. It's not like that, (laughs) (laughs) which would be nice, but unfortunately, we can't do that. And as far as there being donors who have their own certain criteria and so forth, So we do rely on other donor support. So we're an intermediary organization. So we have a grant making pool. And then within that pool, various foundations and donors apply to that. And then we redistribute the funding throughout the world. And so we're also on the grantees side of it as well. So of course, we also encounter donors who have their certain restrictions and maybe they don't want to give to certain methods or whatever it may be. We just work to navigate that. I mean, there's not like a simple answer to that. It's all on a one-by-one basis, but we just work to navigate that and we work to find donors who are also aligned with the type of work that we're doing and the type of approach that we use and create partnership with those donors as well. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I think that kind of got to the heart of it. I guess I would love it if you drilled out on the vegan question, because like my whole life is a matter of drilling down on the vegan question. But if, if that's not something that you can really do if it's not as specific as that. I understand that as well. I mean, it's just that all of us navigating our own lives and navigating our funding and everything so often comes down to the fact that we are passionate about veganism and the rest of the world doesn't get it. And that can create such conflicts. So you're asking, how do we determine which organizations to fund depending on their method or? Well, if you have a funder, which I assume you do, who care very deeply about not a welfareist campaign, of which there are many, and I want to get into that, like the choices between funding cage-free campaigns or whatever, 
and funding vegan campaigns. Do you make that a requirement for your grantees? Is that a bottom line or is there flexibility there? So our funding goes towards changing diets, essentially removing animals from the food system. So that's where our grants go right now. So at this point in time, we're not funding cage-free systems and welfare work. We are looking at organizations that are working to essentially remove animals from the food system and create sustainable plant-based food systems. And as far as the type of strategy that they use to do that, this all depends on their culture, their country, the community they're working with and so forth. So we don't dictate the type of strategy that they can use. And we are willing to accept proposals that use all different types of strategies. But the one outcome is that it works towards removing animals from the food system and creating a plant-based food system. I love the way you put that. I think that's very, very helpful. I mean, because the word vegan brings up so many different thoughts for so many different people. Mm -hmm. And even though that's what I think of as a vegan strategy, mm-hmm. saying removing animals from the food system makes so much more sense. You're actually stating your goal, your, your actual yeah. goal, rather than a word that stands in for your goal. So that makes so much sense to me. Can we get back to the question that I started with, but you wanted to give a little bit more background? Can you just give us a geographical sense of where you are funding just to get yeah. that overview? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been running for a little less than a year now, and already we've been able to reach one out of every three countries in the world. So that means that one out of every three countries in the world, they have a vegan movement. That's insane, Jessica. We exceeded our own expectations. (laughs) We were very surprised that we were able to reach this much so quickly. But yeah, so right now we are funding one out of every three countries in the world through grants and also offering capacity building support. We have distributed about 100 grants in almost 60 countries now, and we are in every continent except Antarctica. If there's anyone in Antarctica listening, it's like my goal to reach someone in Antarctica. (laughs) (laughs) So contact me. But right now we haven't reached Antarctica yet. And we've also focused a lot of the time this year, our first year on Africa and catalyzing the Africa vegan movement as well. And also we have been able to reach about 30% of African countries through grant making and our various movement building initiatives as well. You know, this question, this is something I had pulled from your website and I wanted to ask you about it. You sort of touched on it in your prior answer, but I think I'll go back to it a little bit because you talk about equitable and culturally relevant grant making. Can you talk a little bit more deeply about what that means in an international context. How do you pull it off working in so many cultures? And where do you draw those lines? And and how do you know? Obviously, there are things that go on in other cultures, in countries where we would love everybody to adopt a vegan diet or take animals out of the food system that culturally are very different from ours. And some things we may not love, but we still don't want them to eat animals just because we don't agree on absolutely everything. If you're in a third of the countries on the planet, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think the best way of dealing with that is to have the humility and to accept that we don't know what's going to work in every single culture. I am certainly not an expert in every single culture of the world, not by far. And so we kind of come from a place that we don't know what's going to work in all of these other countries. So when an organization comes to us, when they apply for funding for us or capacity building support from us, we will speak to them. We'll hear more about what they believe works, more about the strategies that they think are going to work in their region. And also 
more about how they believe they're going to contribute to essentially removing animals from the food system. And it might be a situation where in some countries, they can be very outspoken about veganism and plant-based diets. But then in some countries and some communities, they may have to kind of go in a roundabout way about it. So I think the way of getting around the fact that we're working with so many cultures, the main thing is just to have the humility to know that we're not the experts in these cultures. So we listen to our grant recipients and we listen to our yep. grant applicants and let them tell us what is going to work in their region. Does it ever come up or do you anticipate it coming up that maybe it doesn't because your organizations are very focused on this one issue, but that you have to make a decision about whether to support an organization that you really, cultural sensitivity aside, there are really things, you know, on feminism, homosexuality, whatever, that you really disagree with their approach on other issues. And yet they're doing good work vis-a-vis animals or most of your organizations really focused and you don't have to figure out their position on absolutely everything on the planet. Yeah, most of the organizations we fund are are fo- focused, but we do have some groups that do a variety of work. And this is something that we consider. We do have a safe space policy, for instance, and we do expect that all of our grantees will also abide by the safe space policy. So, you know, one aspect of that safe space policy is that the folks from every type of community have a safe space to be in. So if they're working on feminist issues or other type of issues, we're also going to look and see, does this align with our values? Does this other type of work align with the values of Thrive? And if it doesn't, you know, it it might not be an organization that we can partner with. That leads into another discussion. We have to have that discussion. Yeah, I mean, with everything, but really, really with this, once you start digging into what you're doing here, it's an enormous job and it has many, many different facets. You mentioned that you're giving grants to a third of the countries, but how big are these grants? And just give us some examples of the organizations you're funding. So our grants range anywhere from $1,000, very small, up to $50,000. So we have a, a wide variety. And the size of the grant, it depends on the size of the organization, depends on the project, depends on the country, and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, reasoning that goes into deciding how much to provide in that region. And then some of the types of projects that we do, again, it varies so widely depending on the country and the culture. For instance, one project we have, we have a group in Guatemala and they are really doing very bottom up grassroots work. They're working with the women of the villages. They're creating culinary circles with women of the villages. And then these women will go on and start creating their own culinary circles. And it just kind of expands from there. And they're choosing to work with women of the villages because the women are the ones who make the decision making on what their family eats. So that's just one example. We have that. We also have organizations that are doing more larger institutional type of work. So we have organizations in Belgium and Germany and one in Czech Republic that is working with institutions to remove animal-based ingredients. So working with like catering companies and hotel chains and chain restaurants and so forth to remove animal-based ingredients or to replace animal-based products. Festivals are a a very popular one. We have a lot of organizations who like to apply for veg fests. 
And VegFests are kind of interesting because they're different in every single country. And we might think of VegFest as going to be a simple project. It's a fun event, but it can actually have a lot of impact because it brings a lot of public awareness to plant-based eating, to the animals, to the environmental aspect and so forth. And festivals are fun because every single country, the festival will look different. They'll have you know, their traditional dance and their traditional music and show different documentary screenings or whatever it may be, but they all look a bit different depending on the country. We have a lot of organizations that are working with schools and veganizing school lunches. We have one organization in Uganda who is actually working with single mothers and training them on tofu production. So not only are we getting support in replacing meat with eating tofu, but then we're also able to offer an income stream to these single mothers. So there's such a wide variety of tactics that we're funding right now, and it all depends on the country, the culture, the size of the organization, and so forth. Sorry, exciting work. You mentioned that Africa is a huge focus of yours, and that's Mm -hmm. clear from looking at your website. Can you tell us about how big that focus is and why you have chosen to really put a lot of your efforts into Africa? Yeah, absolutely. So we're focusing a lot on Africa this year, and we do aim to expand into more work in Asia and Latin America over the next two to three years. But with Africa, and let me back up and and also make the point that All of the Africa strategies and tactics and so forth, this is determined not by me sitting in the United States, but it's determined by our Africa-based advisory committee and also our Africa-based staff. So I just wanted to make that clear that me being a woman sitting in the United States, I'm not deciding what's going to happen in Africa. But why we decided to start the Africa work is that in, in previous roles, I was observing that a lot of the capacity building work that we were doing for our grantees just wasn't relevant to the Africa context. And I was also observing that there weren't very many grant applications that were coming from that region of the world. And that's simply because the movement was more or less non-existent. It was very, very young in that region. So that's why we decided to put together various initiatives in Africa in order to help catalyze the movement there, to bring more attention to vegan advocacy work, and to also provide leadership development and uh, training and so forth to help build up the movement there. So the different types of Africa initiatives that we have, we first have our Thrive Africa Accelerator, which right now we have, I believe it's at 148 members from about 16 African countries. And the Africa Accelerator, it is used to build community first, just to build community with vegan activists. And then it's also used to provide training support, to launch certain types of campaigns and tactics, and also to just bring in new activists who are interested in this type of work. So we have our Africa Accelerator. Now, when you talk about an accelerator, I've always heard that word used in the context of helping businesses grow, but you're using it in the context of helping NGOs grow and just helping small organizations or even individual activists grow. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, that is the best way of putting it. Like we are essentially providing them with management skill sets to help their organizations and help their activism grow. So absolutely. So we have the Africa Accelerator and then we also have the Africa Vegan Women's Initiative. And the reason that we decided to launch the Women's Initiative is because I was observing 
also within Africa that the majority of our grant applications that we were receiving were for male-led projects. And the few women-led projects that we were granting to the women, they would do the project and then they would just kind of fall off the radar. We'd never hear from them again. So we wanted to create a platform that brought women together, that offered more leadership development and any other type of support that they would need to be able to take on more leadership roles within the plant-based movement. So we launched the Africa Vegan Women's Initiative. This was launched this year, well, I guess last year now. And it was a pilot project, but even just from the first year, it did very very well. And we actually ended up with more women-based grant applications than we had ever had in the past. I think we've tripled the number of women-based projects that are being funded there. So that's our women's initiative. And then the last thing that we do in Africa is that we have um, pan-Africa-wide joint campaigns. And so these are campaigns that anyone in Africa can join and they can do the campaign within their own specific country, do it however they like. They can use our tools and resources or they can use their own tools and resources. But right now we have the Africa Vegan Restaurant Week and then we have the Africa Vegan School Lunch Campaign. And we have about 70 organizations that are registered to do these campaigns. And again, these are campaigns that are ran by our grantees and then also by folks who aren't our grantees as well. And they are done across any African country and they're able to run the campaign however they like. And so through our Africa work, we've really been able to observe the growth of the vegan movement in the continent. And although Thrive has only been around for a year, we were also doing Africa work before we launched Thrive as well. And we kind of brought all of that over with us to Thrive. So our Africa work actually goes back a couple of years with the same team. And we've been able to really see a significant growth and expansion of vegan work happening across the continent. It's been quite remarkable, actually, to see all the work that's been happening there and all of the attention that it's being brought to plant-based advocacy. Yeah, even from my very distant view, I, I can see that because we've interviewed a number of people in Africa, I mean, including Navasa Innocent, who, who I think is heading up things for you and mm -hmm. your Africa program, yeah. yeah. And it used to be so hard to both find people, you know, like searching the internet for people who were interested and then, you know, making sure they were legit. We could try to do some research on our guests to make sure that they are, we don't want to put them out there and tell people things that aren't real. And, and it was hard. I mean, we managed it, but it was hard. Now you have made it so easy. You have come up with all of these people who are doing amazing work and it's so easy to find them. At the same time, it's kind of easy to look only within that vegan bubble and miss the big picture. What is the real current status and possible future for veganism and, or plant-based or at least more animal-friendly agriculture in Africa? I know there are forces fighting in the other direction as well. Yeah, absolutely. There are certainly a lot of forces fighting <laughs> fighting in the other direction. And yeah, there always yeah, are. There always yeah, are. Unfortunately, I guess the way that I look at it is even though the work that we've done, you know, looking at the larger picture, even though it might be just a drop in the bucket, it might be very small compared to what the animal agriculture is doing. But the way the kind of the perspective that I see on it is that we are planting all these seeds with 
plant-based advocates across the region. And then those seeds will begin to grow. They'll start expanding their organizations. More organizations will start popping up. People from universities will start going into this field of work as a career. So we're planting all the seeds. And even though it's it's small right now, even though what we've been able to do, we think it sounds remarkable, but in the big picture, it's actually you know just a drop in the bucket. But we are quite confident that it will continue to grow. Like we have to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere. And even though the animal ag industry still has the upper hand, we have to start somewhere. And we're at least like setting the foundation and supporting the growth of the movement there. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about your personal theory of change, but it sounds like you might have just laid it out that planting seeds is basically maybe a metaphor for your theory of change. Is that right? Yeah. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Like we're able to get the movement started in these regions of the world. We're able to support the early stage growth. We're able to support the organizations until they become kind of a mid-sized organization. And then from there, we're able to support them as they begin to get funding from other funders and grow and develop and hire new staff and do even better work. So yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Like we plant the seeds and then we support them as they grow and develop and do even more amazing things. Speaking of theories of change, we all know on an international level that the animal rights movement, which didn't use, and you've been doing this long enough, so you remember, there didn't used to be much of any money at all. And a lot more money has come into the movement, but a lot of it, really a lot of it, the effect of altruism money is very focused on welfare improvements and putting a lot of effort into cage-free campaigns, that sort of thing. So why is Thrive headed in a different direction. What's your personal feeling? I'm not asking you to go there about like, this is right and this is wrong. I'm not asking you to do that unless you want to, of course. But why are you headed in a different direction? Yeah, we saw that there does appear to be a lot more funding going into welfare work. And I've also observed just from speaking with hundreds and hundreds of advocates outside the United States from countries everywhere, there's a lot of interest in diet change work. There's a lot of interest in work that actually overcomes industrial animal agriculture. But there's challenges with organizations and getting enough funding for it. They tend to find, and I'm speaking in generalizations, of course, but generally speaking, it tends to be easier to get funding to do welfare work than to get funding to do diet change work or plant-based advocacy work. So we feel like we're meeting that niche. We felt like there was a need for more funding to go towards work that actually aims to overcome industrial animal agriculture. And so we feel like we're filling that niche. And we're also supporting organizations who have a passion towards not only improving welfare standards, but to actually end the systems that create those welfare issues in the first place. And one of your goals, which you mentioned, is to make things easier more reliable, possible for donors. Can you just tell us a little bit more? We focused on your work and your relationships with your grantees, but what about your donors? How do you work with them? As you said in the beginning, like a lot of of organizations end up just doing what donors want to do, which, you know, we don't want philanthropy to be just that. But at the same time, it's people's money. I mean, you know, if they're going to give their money away, they want it to be for something they believe in. So how do you work with them to make sure you're satisfying both those needs? Yeah, you know, it's challenging. (laughs) It's not like a magic method. I think for us, all of my experience has been working in international philanthropy. So I think that I'm able to bring in that perspective because, I mean, there's a lot of donors who have worked internationally as well, but also a lot of them have primarily focused either on the United States or Europe and essentially just Eurocentric cultures. 
So I think that I'm able to bring in this perspective of what are some of the needs in Global South countries? What are some of the needs with more grassroots emerging organizations as well? So I think just having that dialogue, bringing in that perspective helps to kind of navigate it and find what is the best fit between what the donor wants, what the grantee needs, and so forth. So it's really just, again, going back to having those authentic relationships and having these open discussions and working to navigate both of them and ensure that the donors are happy, that the donors' needs are met, and then also ensure that the grantees who we ultimately fund ensure that all of their needs are met and they're working as impactful as they can. And with the donors, we have a variety of ways that we work with them. We have our grant making pool and that's where donors are just donating directly to our grant making pool and then Thrive itself distributes that funding. And then we also do direct recommendations. So we also work with donors and provide them a list of recommendations and then they can determine which of those groups that they want to support. And then we also have a a few other models as well, like fiscal sponsorship models and so forth. But really, you know, there's not a specific answer that I could give to your question. It's more about, again, just having that one-on-one relationship, working with people, just ensuring that everyone is having their needs met and ensure that they're happy with the outcomes and so forth. So I don't know if that was a satisfying answer, but it's kind of a a complicated answer. Well, I mean, it's nice to have simple answers to everything, but there aren't always simple answers. It sounds like a lot of your work on both sides is relationship building. Absolutely. The best way of putting it. Do you ever anticipate taking donations from the general public or are we just talking large donors? Both. Yeah, both. We can certainly take donations from the general public. And one good thing about what makes Thrive unique and what makes donating to Thrive unique is that whether you're donating $20 or you know $20,000, it helps to support the global movement. So whenever you're donating to Thrive, you're actually getting your funding all across the world and helping to support the movement all across the world and overcoming industrial animal agriculture. So yes, certainly we do take funding from uh, the general public as well. Before I let you go, I just want to go back a little bit and have you tell us a little bit more about who are the people who make up Thrive. As you mentioned, you're all women at the moment, at least your central team, BIPOC majority, but you also have a large number of advisors all over the world, I see from your website. How does that all work? And how do you draw from all of these people to get the most intelligent ways forward in all of these different cultures? Yeah, absolutely. Since we are working with grantees all across the globe, we feel like it's important that we have an international team, whether that be our staff team or whether it be our advisory committee as well. And so with the staff, we have staff based in various countries across the world, and they are primarily focused on the type of work that is happening within their continent or within their own country. And then with our advisory committee, again, we have advisory committee members from all across the world and also different specialties. And then we'll reach out to them if we are looking to fund maybe an organization in a certain country, we might reach out to our advisory committee then, get their input on it. If we're looking to start an initiative in a certain country, we'll use the advisory committee to get their input on it. And then also the advisory committee is used to support our grantees as well. So if we have a grantee who comes to us and they need support in grant writing or fundraising or whatever it may be, we can also tap our advisory committee and 
get them able to have some one-on-one consultation support as well. So we use the advisory committee in a multiple ways as well. Well, it's a complex organization. You're taking on the entire world. It used to be, you know, when people would bring up veganism, they would always bring up Africa or some other place in the world that, you know, I was not particularly familiar with and just talk about how that's impossible. We're being ridiculous. There are people starving. They have to have animals. They have to have their herds. And my standard answer was always like, I live where I live and I'm dealing with the fact that animal agriculture is horrible where I live. I don't know the answers for the whole world, but you really are broadening at least the questions and many of the answers for the whole world. And I think that's something for all of us to be grateful to because that was a, I'm not sure that it was a gotcha question. I never felt like they got me, but they thought they did. You have taken that vision that we actually could have a vegan world. All right, maybe we won't. I don't know. Like it's a hard ask, but the idea that it's just even remotely possible is such a gift to this movement, Jessica. And and you're really making that happen. You're showing it's going on everywhere. And one of the most important things I have always thought about being vegan, which I'm using a shorthand for a person who just gets it about animals, is that we are everywhere. We're a nation unto ourselves. We are everywhere. You could drop me down anywhere in the world. And if I could just manage to speak the language, I would find those people who care about animals. Like they, we are everywhere and, and you're finding them and you're giving them money. So <laughs> that is really a great gift to us all. Thank you so much, Marianne. And I do a, a funny note when you said, you know, sometimes people will come back to you about Africa and say, well, what about Africa? It's impossible. I also had that comment when we started doing Africa work, but it works. It works. Yeah. And, you know, you're allowing people who actually live there and know Africa to provide some of those answers. And that's what's incredibly, incredibly valuable. So like we haven't had any time to talk about things that are going on in your life personally. And also the last time you were on, you talked a lot about your work in Nepal. And I know you're about to to go on a trip there. So on the bonus, I want to get a little bit more into that personal stuff. You're just doing so much. We haven't had time in the interview, but I'm grateful to you for everything you're doing and for sharing it with us today. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Marianne. It's been such a pleasure being on here again. You've started your organization and are fighting the good fight to help animals. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, you still have to deal with people. Now what? Scarlet Spark is hosting free leadership workshops on the first Tuesday of every month on topics like leadership essentials, strategic thinking, and performance assessment to help you run your organization more efficiently so that you can help even more animals. Sign up today at luma slash scarlet dash spark. That's L-U dot M-A slash S-C-A-R-L-E-T dash S-P-A-R-K. Again, that's lu dot ma slash scarlet dash spark. We'll also link to it in our show notes. Anxieties are rising. We have some doozies today. Our first story is a serious one, though. Well, as serious as these jokers can get. And this, this is about the continuing anxiety, which they just cannot let go of, of a Prop 12. 
which of course, you know, was the law that California passed by a ballot initiative in which people voted that they wanted to set some very, very minimal regulations for not only the animals who were raised in California, but for some of the meat that was sold in California. I'm not sure it's this article that pointed it out. This article is from that I'm talking about is from Sentient Media, and it's by Marlena Williams. Uh, so it's by our pals at Sentient Media. And I'm not sure whether it was here or somewhere else that I read this fact that, you know, they're they're over the pork issue. The, the pork industry has adjusted to this. That's not really what's going on here. What's going on is that they just need to stop this pattern uh, because they can see it, you know, like it's probably not going to stop here. And, and they just don't. <laughs> this continuation of policies to be voted on by the voters of uh, a democracy that will limit what they can do to animals. Uh, So anyway, this article is entitled How the Farm Bill Could Quietly Reverse Prop 12. Now, you may have heard uh, over the past you know, year or so, like we're moving up on the next farm bill. Well, we, it was a 2023 deadline and they missed it. So we're still moving up on it. Between now and the bill's passage, according to this article, opponents of animal welfare legislation are reportedly looking to use the farm bill and the controversial companion legislation, the EATS Act, to negate California's landmark law, Proposition 12, which went into full effect at the start of the year. Now, we've heard of the EATS Act before, that's standalone legislation, and this article is to some extent, about the efforts to just incorporate that into the farm bill, which is, of course, enormous. I mean, unbelievably enormous, and nobody actually reads it. The jockeying goes on. The article points out that the EATS Act was introduced, and we have talked about it before, in June of 2023. And the whole goal has always been to make its way into the farm bill, but the farm bill just got stalled because, you know, Washington, it's a mess there. And so it's still going on. Negotiations, as she says, are currently underway to get more lawmakers on board with incorporating either the EATS Act or a slimmed down version of it, potentially focusing only on meat and eggs into the final farm bill. And there is a lot of opposition still. Apparently 211 lawmakers, I guess that includes both the Senate and the House, signed a letter opposing the bill. So hopefully they will stand stand strong. But unfortunately, it is Smithfield, which, of course, is huge, huge, huge. They are the, I mean, I can't imagine anybody in the pork industry is really enthusiastic about it or anybody in animal agriculture is enthusiastic. But Smithfield is apparently leading the charge. Uh, it is now, of course, a Chinese-owned company. And, and it, it, it's a huge, huge company. It dominates the U.S. pork market. And they don't want this to happen. They have been widely criticized for animal problems, of course, you know, (laughs) like like just the the use of gestation crates and, you know, for all sorts of other other issues which don't even have anything to do with animals. But that's not the only thing, effort that's going on. So they're trying to get into the farm bill, trying to, you know, slide it through. And the thing is, is though, I should make this clear because we all know that the, that, Prop 12 was upheld by the Supreme Court. But that makes it sound like, you know, it's done, but it's not. It wasn't that it, it wasn't constitutional. Uh it doesn't it they didn't say that the constitution prohibits Congress from doing anything vis-a-vis farm animals. It was only because it was a one-state solution and had to do with interstate commerce and the commerce clause. So 
there's nothing about the Supreme Court decision that would stop Congress from doing whatever it wants to these poor suffering animals. So there's this other bill, Protecting Interstate Commerce for Livestock Producers Act. This was introduced by Senator Josh Hawley, that charmer from Missouri. According to this article, it which would prohibit any state or local jurisdiction from passing any law that regulates livestock production if those livestock-derived goods are subject to interstate commerce. If passed, any state or local law that impacts how livestock is raised, produced, used, slaughtered, transported, distributed, or sold could violate federal law. So very, very similar. I mean, as this says, it's it's basically a regurgitated version of the EATS Act. You know, it's kind of dual efforts aimed at the same goal that are going on at the same time, and they're just hoping they can pull one of them off, and we, you know, we just have to stay on top of it. All right, that's the serious article. Well, they're all serious in their own way. <laughs> the, next one, the next one's insane, I have to tell you. It's from Fox News. It's an opinion column by Jason Reed. Young people like me, apparently Jason is young, or he thinks he is, are going vegan. That's bad for the environment. This is like, this is so bad. Oh my God. It's just so bad. All right. He starts off by saying, going vegan is all the rage. I see it all the time. I'm in my early 20s and I have lost count of how many of my peers have switched to a so-called plant-based lifestyle. Young liberals, you know, this is Fox News. So, you know, you want to, the word liberal would cast to most listeners or readers to Fox News would cast these people in a dark light. So that's a good uh, term to use. They care deeply about the environment. Don't young conservatives too? I don't know. I mean, they might think that we should do different things, but do they not care? I don't know. They want to do their bit to stop what they see as the quote unquote climate crisis. They think going... They think going vegan will help. What they don't realize is by giving up meat, they might actually be harming the planet. Oh my God. Oh my God. What are we going to do? We want it to be vegan. And like uh, Jason's going to tell us why that's so misguided. All right. Polls show a huge rise in veganism in recent years, especially among millennials and Gen Z. 1% of all Americans now call themselves vegan. for as long as I can remember. And I've been doing this for a long time. The number of people calling themselves vegan has stood at 1%. So that doesn't seem like a huge increase. I wish Jason was right. I really do. Uh, It doesn't sound like he is though. All right. So he's talking about how all of these crazy kids think that uh, veganism is connected to fighting climate change and and that uh, it's cement, this idea is cemented in the minds of young people. Unfortunately, he says the truth is rather different. He does say meat and dairy industries emit polluting gases that contribute to climate change. It's not in quotes this time. So apparently he does think that it actually is happening. Going vegan is not necessarily an improvement. Cutting meat and dairy out of their diets forces young vegans to switch to other products that are often much more environmentally damaging. I bet you're curious to know what that is. Take protein, for example. We all need protein. And he does say that there are plant-based protein sources like beans and lentils, but even a young liberal needs variety in their diet. Who wants to eat beans at every meal three times a day, seven days a week? All right, now we're getting a little uh, far afield from what's bad to what you just think people don't like. Uh, I want to eat beans at every meal. I wish I could. I'd give me gas, but uh, I eat them as much as I can. I would eat them three times a day, seven days a week, but you know, maybe maybe Jason can't cook. All right, so inevitably. Young vegans turn to other sources 
of protein, often marketed as quote-unquote meat substitutes. He says they're, they're, these are designed to make beans more interesting, to make them look and taste like meat. But a lot of them have soybeans, and farming soybeans is a disaster for the planet. I bet you didn't know that. And he doesn't really talk that much about the Amazon thing, which is refreshing. Maybe they're catching on to that. But he does claim that he does claim that soybean farming fuels deforestation. They have to people have to chop down trees to clear land. Well, you know, they could just they grow plenty of soybeans in land that's all that, that we chopped down the trees a long time ago. They they're inefficient. Uh, I didn't know that. They take up a lot of space. <laughs> I didn't know that either. So they require more deforestation than other similar bean plants. Does so doesn't that mean that we should use other similar bean plants if that was true? They cause soil erosion. My God. They they use up huge amounts of water. They've been known to contribute to droughts. They're just little by little, soybeans are destroying the planet. <laughs> Did the young vegans consider this when they chose to forego their beef burgers for a soy burger instead? Oh my God, what have I done all these years? And like I've destroyed the planet. That's apparently the problem with soy. We don't talk about like, you know, about the animals who eat the soy and all of that. But, but uh, you know, let's not, let's not confuse the issues with the facts. Then, you know, he gets on to going vegan also means giving up dairy. Then we get onto the almond milk, you know, and as I've said 10 billion times, almond milk, yeah, it uses up more water than other plants, but it sure doesn't use up as much water as dairy farms. Coconut milk apparently has disastrous consequences for the fertility of soil. Really? I heard that one. Oat milk, another favorite of the millennial vegan. But it often contains glyphosate, an herbicide, which is kryptonite. Well, everything contains glyphosate. I'm sorry. That's Roundup. That's the commercial name for it. And uh, it's hardly only oat milk uh, that contains it. You know, rice milk emits methane. Well, the rice milk. Yeah, he does just say it emits methane. Rice production is less environmentally friendly than some plants, I will admit. Just like dairy cows. And it's got arsenic. And then there's soy milk, which is made with, you guessed it, soybeans. Oh my God. What is a young vegan to do? Everywhere you look, he says, vegan substitutes for meat and dairy products turn out to be much worse for the planet than the animal products they are intended to replace. He has not actually made any effort to establish that. He has just pointed out that, you know, growing plants causes problems too. Doesn't mention that they're not nearly as big. That's a, that's a crazy one. All right, the emotional farmer. This one will tug at your heartstrings. This is from Horde's Dairy Man. This is by one Erin Massey, who apparently grew up on a dairy farm, but she got out. And she doesn't seem to know a lot about dairy farming, I have to say, even though I think her family is still in. She's talking about the sadness and the grief and the loss. And I would imagine, you know, if you have a head on your shoulders, that growing up on a dairy farm would involve a hell of a lot of sadness. The circle of life still rocks my emotions. I.e., she gets sad when, when people and animals die. I think that's what she means, you know, that most of us is it's true. Perhaps that's one of the underlying reasons I am not farming now. I wanted to avoid the hard decisions and the sadness that comes when things are out of your control. Out of your control, Aaron? Like, it's kind of, it's, it's your farm. It's kind of in your control. You just, you know, make your decisions. And we all know that nature has the firmest grip on the farming steering wheel. Well, apparently she doesn't think she's in control. All right. So she's quoting this influencer. 
a dairy farmer influencer. And he, he recently explained on his social media channels why he had to call a cow. Now, we all know that we use the word kill instead of call. It's so funny that the word for slaughterhouse is plant and the word for kill is call. It's so odd. And it was a cow, you know, from my understanding, like cows get killed pretty darn regularly on dairy farms. It happens a lot at about the age of four, uh, even though they will live much longer than that if they weren't sent to the slaughterhouse. Simply put, she was an aged cow. Doesn't She didn't mention exactly how aged. Uh, I bet she wasn't really that aged. That was no longer producing enough milk. Well, yeah, there's the kicker. While many, myself included, may romanticize the idea of putting, putting her out to pasture to live the rest of her life happily ever after. He reminded viewers that is not how nature works. Well, that's not how dairy farming works. <laughs> What does nature have to do with this? Like, what? Are there still people who think that's what happens to dairy cows? They go to some pasture somewhere? Like, it must be a really big... I guess we have a pasture on the moon. All right, so that's not how nature works because she would have a poor quality of life as she physically declined due to natural aging. She physically declined due to, like, um, over-milking and over-birthing for the four years she was on the planet. And then she would not be providing meat to feed our community. Where, well, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> and yet, while it was obvious, the decision was still hard. The cow was loved and she was thanked. I am sure that made her feel a lot better on her way to the slaughterhouse. She concludes like this. We are human. I'm not sure how much that gets us. And we get emotional, though that's not the side of farming we typically show to those outside of our dairy community. Yeah, I don't really see it a lot, I have to say. I applaud Dan's transparency and ability to make those tough decisions. They are hard enough to make in private, but to be able to share them with the world is a gift. Well, thanks so much for that gift, Dan, and thank you for telling me about it, Erin. I really appreciate it. It made my day. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. Visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can become part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include being part of a community with great alliteration. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. But some of the real perks include weekly bonus content and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me for a live recording of an Our Hen House podcast episode, followed by an opportunity to meet with the guests. And since Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts or leave us a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also, like us on Facebook where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Our Hen House. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. 
Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. And special thanks to Jen Riley. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so much for your support, compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.